We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, welcome. Glad that everybody could be here today. We are, again, in the season of Advent where we read from the prophets. And this year, it's the prophet Isaiah. And it's kind of like a, more of an American thing that we sort of think of, when we think of prophets, what we think of is like fortune tellers, right? People who can tell the future. But that's not quite right. Um, prophets, in the biblical sense, weren't fortune tellers. They were truth tellers. That's the prophets. Who could see what was really happening in the world and had the courage to speak about it. They would tell the truth about, usually about how corrupt leaders were creating systems of injustice or idolatry. And the prophets would come and deliver the bad news to the people and speak truth to power, which is also why the prophets didn't usually live for very long. They all almost all ended up dead. And so while everybody else sort of tried to just go along and get along, hide their heads in the sands, the prophets had their eyes wide open, naming realities that other people weren't able to see and thinking thoughts that people just couldn't allow themselves to think. And I think it's actually kind of important for us to consider why they could do this. Why did they have this ability? How could the prophets see what others couldn't? And my favorite illustration of this I've used before, but I just think it's the best. It comes from the world of science. Um, If you think about in the days of Isaac Newton, virtually everyone knew when an apple falls from a tree, it goes straight down and hits the ground. It doesn't like float around in the air like a balloon. This was not like a surprise to them, this phenomenon. But Newton could see something others couldn't see. He had a thought nobody else was thinking which was if an apple falls to the ground, there must be some force acting upon it. And he was the first one to kind of theorize about this and try to describe gravity using mathematics. And years later, along comes Einstein, and he said, sure, an apple that breaks loose and falls to the ground um, will, will fall with gravity. But then he asked the question, what if you're riding the apple, like on its way down? And it's falling, falling, falling for like this long distance. And once it gets up to speed, he said, you would no longer feel the effects of gravity until it squashes on the pavement. You would probably feel this, but like on the way down, you'd feel nothing, right? You'd feel weightless. And Einstein had this this thought experiment. He said, imagine you're in an elevator and you're descending into the vacuum of space. You're just going really fast on this elevator in the vacuum of space at a constant speed. So if you're in a constant rate of, you know, motion, you won't feel the effects of that motion. In fact, from inside the elevator, he said, there'd be no way for you to even know that you are moving without reference to something outside of the elevator, outside the system. You would just feel like you're standing still. You'd have no way of knowing you're in motion unless you have some point of reference outside the system. For example, right now, we are all hurtling through space at 67,000 miles an hour around the sun. Why is nobody screaming, right? (laughs) Because we're all going the same speed. Everything inside our frame of reference is moving at the same speed. In in Kansas, we are spinning on the Earth's axis at 875 miles per hour right now. But we can't feel it. And we, we can't even scientifically prove it unless we can get a glimpse of something outside of our system. For instance, this is a time-lapse photograph from um, an observatory in um, La Silla, Chile, really far south. 
If it's, if it's dark outside, we can see the stars and the planets outside of our system, right? They become a point of reference that helps us see we're actually in motion. This is the role of the prophets in Israel's life, the people of God's life. They were so joined with God, it's like they had this reference point outside the system. And so they would go around saying, I think we're actually hurtling through space at 67,000 miles per hour. They would say things like this, right? We're spinning at 875 miles per hour, even though it doesn't feel like we are. And the problem with someone who talks like this is they sound crazy, for one thing, and the other people, the powerful, usually attack them. Einstein had this other thought experiment, this one might be a bridge too far, but I kind of don't care because it's really amazing. He says, pretend I have a light clock. And like the the pendulum on this is a a beam of light, a cylinder that that has two ends or two mirrors at either end, this single dot of light just bouncing back and forth like a pendulum. Because the speed of light is constant, it's like a perfect clock, keeps perfect time. The dot just bounces back and forth between these mirrors at a constant velocity, tick, Talk. And the distance it travels, say, let's just say it's like one foot from mirror to mirror, it always stays the same. And since light travels at a constant speed, it's this perfect clock. Now, say, now pretend this light clock is on a train going really, really fast, like this going the speed of light. And if we're all on the train and we looked at the light clock, it, it would appear to us the same as it did on the ground. This is being bouncing up and down. Even though one we were still, the the other we were in motion, like at the speed of light, it would just look like it's going up and down in the cylinder as we are moving because we all share the same frame of reference. It just looked like a beam of light bouncing up and down. But what if you're on the train and I'm on the ground and you go past me at the speed of light? I would not see the beam of light as bouncing straight up and down. To me, on the ground, it would look as though it were zigzagging as you went by. If you measured the distance, it would still be just one foot that the beam of light traveled, right? But if I measured the distance, observing it from the ground as you go by, it would be be longer. In my frame of reference, it would travel much farther. You see it? Now, the problem with this, Einstein said, is that speed of light is a constant, in physics, the speed of light is always C. Do you remember this from high school, like chemistry or physics or whatever? In E equals MC squared, C is the speed of light. It's from the Latin word celeritas. It means speed. I just always think of it as C for constant, so I don't forget. The speed of light is always constant, 186,000 miles per second. But we have these two different distances here, one in your clock and one the, the red lines are different. Mine's longer on the ground. Which, for this equation, causes a problem. Because the only other vari- variable in that equation is time. So if you're on the train and I'm on the ground, relative to me, your clock will run more slowly than mine. And that is how a DeLorean can be a time machine. <laughs> This was crazy. This was crazy to say this. Time is relative. That was, that was the claim. Anybody's, by the way, brain already like hurting and so you checked out of the example? <laughs> Anybody like totally enthused right now and want to stay afterwards and talk about science? 
yeah, you nerds are my people, right? So this is just, this is the theory of relativity. It's kind of trippy and strange to think about time as not being constant, but being relative to space and motion. Einstein published this paper in 1905, and you cannot imagine how threatening this was to the world of science. I mean, he wasn't a big name in physics at the time. He was working as like a reading patents for the, the patent office, scientific applications for patents. And then Einstein writes this paper, and it was like a, it was like a voice from outside the system saying, I can, I can think a thought other scientists haven't thought. I'm naming something they can't see. And the science community savaged him, savaged him. They called him a pathological liar. I mean, they, they resorted to anti-Semitism. They, they called it Jewish science. Nobel Committee wouldn't give him a Nobel Prize for it. And when they finally gave him one years later, it wasn't for this. It was for his work on the photoelectric effect. I mean, this is like the biggest advance in physics since Newton. He still never received a Nobel Prize for it. That's how dangerous this idea is and threatening. And the thing about it is it's basically high school calculus or high school math. But it was just this thought that nobody could think yet. And this is what the prophet does. They think thoughts no one else is thinking. They see things no one else can see. And then they talk about it. And they call others to change their life relative to it. And I think this offers us a really important insight. That without relating to something outside of our system, we can't accurately name what's going on inside our system. This is just a reality. Unless we, in a sense, go out, sit in the dark, and look up at the stars, we can't tell the earth is spinning at 875 miles per hour in Kansas. Unless we can see outside the elevator going at a constant speed, all of our senses will will tell us we're standing still. We're not moving at all. Without relating to something outside our system, we can't accurately name what's happening inside the system. And for the people of God... The ones they turn to for some kind of input from outside the system was the prophet. That's the role of the prophet. They had this reference point outside the system so they could name and see accurately what's going on inside the system. This is part of why the church still to this day does things like weekly worship and daily prayer and observing the church calendar, things like the season of Advent, is to work on establishing this connection um, with God that will function as a reference point outside our system so that we can name a little more accurately what's actually happening in the world and in our own lives. And Advent is this season where we try to kind of intentionally decrescendo our lives so that we can pry open just a little window, just a little bit of space on, um, at the end of the month on Christmas Eve to sort of, in a sense, look up at the night sky and see the stars moving and greet the prophets with some kind of openness. In today's passage, the prophet Isaiah told the people something silly and impossible. He said, a shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his root. And everybody thought he was a nutter. 
It did not conform to the laws of physics of the day. The house of Jesse, you see, was, was dead. It was a stump. The line was over. It was worthless. If you remember the story of Ruth, remember the story of Ruth from the Old Testament, how she, she had gone far away and then came back home to Bethlehem and marries this guy, Boaz. They have a family, and their grandson was named Jesse, and he lived in Bethlehem. It was a sheep rancher. He had a wife and a bunch of kids, a bunch of boys especially, lived peacefully in the hill country, farming, growing sheep, until one day the prophet Samuel shows up at his door asking to meet his sons. You remember the story? God had revealed to Samuel that he was rejecting Saul, King Saul, and Samuel should anoint a new king, and he said, go to Bethlehem, sheep town, out in the sticks, and find the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And so he, he went and said, I need to meet your sons. And Eliab, the first son, comes, and he's like tall, dark, and handsome. He's been like bred to lead this family anyway. And Samuel's like, this is perfect. This has to be the guy. But God says, remember, um, the Lord um, looks, people see at the outside, the Lord looks at what? The heart, right? So he sees, he's like, this isn't, this isn't the guy. And so he's like, okay, well, then on to, on to the next guy. Give me the next son. And he just goes through the next son and the next son and the next son. He, finally, he's like, is that all of them? Is there no, no more? And, the, and, and Jesse's kind of embarrassed. He's like, well, there's one more. But he's kind of a runt. And he's out in the field with the sheep, which is like not a dignified thing to happen to the son of the landowner, owner, right? He's like, I can wait. Brings him in. Of course, it's, it's David, Israel's greatest king. The one who led Israel faithfully for so long, who, who like won their independence, moved um, the capital to Jerusalem, this great city, who made a covenant with God, had a bunch of kids, was a faithful king, and under his leadership, Israel prospered. Of course, until his kids got involved, things went sideways, and then it was just one bad king after another, one bad decision after another. And during the reign of four of those kings came Isaiah the prophet, who warned Israel, God is getting tired of the games you're playing. You know, God's plan, and we've talked about this a lot, God's plan for Israel was that God would pull them aside from the other nations for long enough, like decades, centuries long enough, to give them a different reference point from the rest of the world. God would kind of, in a sense, hammer God's image into this people over centuries, almost like a blacksmith working on an anvil. And it would be this long and painful process for them, but as long as they stayed on the anvil, God could work on their character, and they felt blessed, and they were a blessing to the nations. But when they hopped off the anvil, which they often did, God would send a prophet and say, get back. Get back where you belong. And because this is all because God is trying to shape Israel into a nation of priests. If you remember, we studied the priests this summer in Leviticus. The priest's job is to mediate the presence of God to the world. That's what they're supposed to They're supposed to be like a nation that mediates God's presence to the world. And it worked for a long time, man. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Aaron, the priest, Moses, down clear through David. It seemed to be working. The dream was coming true. But then starting with Solomon, the kings of Israel began to be unfaithful. They climbed off the animal and things kind of turned sideways. Until finally it had gotten so bad that God um, put an axe to the base of the tree. 
and cut it down, the house of Jesse, cut it down. It was destroyed. There was no more lineage of kings from the house. Israel was carried off into exile. All that was left was a stump, like a, a memory. Long after Isaiah was, was gone, Jerusalem lay in ruins, and there was no king in Israel. And there in the ruins, somehow the people remembered Isaiah centuries later. And they returned to his, his writings where the prophet had told them, A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And the crazy thing is they started to believe it even though it was kind of a nutty thing to believe, that this line of kings from Jesse's family that seemed to be over, but God was promising now to to grow it again, that a little shoot would grow again from the stump of Jesse. It wasn't dead. The dream isn't over. God would send someone from the house and lineage of David, which we should recognize from Luke, who would lead the people back to faithfulness again. And this just caught hold of their imaginations. It was like a voice crying out in the wilderness, thinking the unthinkable thought, seeing what no one else could see, that they could, again, have a leader who wouldn't just judge by what his eyes see, what his ears could hear, not just the pragmatic thing, but a leader that would have this frame of reference from outside the system and so could lead them more truly when scholars look at this passage from Isaiah 11, this, these 10, first 10 verses, they often split, split them in half, um, verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 10, and, and isolate the themes. There's this writer, Paul Simpson Duke, he says that the two sections, if they were paintings, you would name the first painting, 1 through 5, justice, and the second painting, you would name peace. And I want us to, to read this passage one more time. But I want you to imagine that you're a part of the, the Israelite people living in Jerusalem during the exile. Only you're not the ones who got carried off like with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all that. You were left behind in Jerusalem during exile. So you're being ruled over by a foreign power. All of your life is this series of injustices. And anything of value that you have can be taken from you at any time, and often was. I mean, your land, your houses, your, your livestock, all the way down to your daughters, your wife, your own life, your sons. And so life was kind of filled with dread and, and despair and this longing for somebody to come along and change the situation. A king like David who would liberate them, right, and restore justice for them. And then they happened on this word from Isaiah saying, a shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight 
shall be in the fear of the Lord. Fear didn't mean like oh, quaking afraid. It meant a kind of reverence. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with his words, with his message, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. And as they they read this text, they knew instantly this um, is what they were longing for. They needed this. They needed a leader with reference outside the system who could bring wisdom and understanding, it says, into their common life because it wasn't organized wisely. And counsel, it would involve everyone in the decisions. And might, not an insecure leader, but someone with deep down kind of strength. And knowledge, but knowledge with this deep reverence for, for God. And this leader's special concern, it says, will be for the outcasts, the struggles. It names the, the poor and the meek. And when this leader comes and leads, um, everyone will, will have enough to live on, Right? It's a vision of justice, of social justice, that comes in relationship to this wise ruler who has reference to something outside the system. They have wisdom, counsel, might, knowledge. And they began to dream about what the world would be like under this kind of a leader. And then that's when you transition to verse 6 in the, the second part of it, which is, the wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fat lean together. And it says, a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal to all the peoples. And the nation shall inquire of him and his dwelling shall be glorious. It's this this vision of a world. And this vision comes from outside the system. It it makes no sense according to their current social, political situation, their current frame of reference. I mean, even for us, it's still that way. These these are unlikely friendships between mortal enemies that are used here in this symbolic way. I mean, predators and prey having a meal together, right? The wolf and the lamb taking a nap together. The child playing over the viper's den. And and showing, showing the way to this kind of life isn't like Braveheart, Or a warrior king, it says, a little child shall lead them. And this picture of coexistence, peaceful coexistence, it's not like just homogenous, like just a bunch of like-minded zombies. The lion doesn't stop being a lion. The lamb doesn't stop being a lamb. They just learn to live together in peace. It doesn't compute. And when the early church looked at these pictures from Isaiah 11, they looked at verse 1 through 5, and they saw Jesus. And they looked at verses 6 through 10, and they saw us. They saw the church. That's what the early church said. 
They said Jesus is the, is the righteous ruler, the little child who comes to lead us. A new kind of king who rules with power, but it's not like dominating power, you know, not fear and ego and violence. It's, it's meek and gentle in its power. Its power has a tenderness and is rooted in self-sacrifice and has real wisdom of, of what really makes for peace in this world. Peace not through wars and domination and, and those kind of things, but through peace that comes through crazy stuff like forgiveness and reconciliation grace and mercy. And they looked at Isaiah's um, dream of this good king and they saw Jesus. And they looked at what the world would be like if it followed this Jesus and they saw the church, a new community who would follow Christ and then begin to embody this peaceable kingdom. Become sort of like a, a new kind of a family like the house of Jesse where enemies we're always becoming friends and where the goal isn't to hurt or destroy each other or the planet or whatever, but to nurture life, to cause things to flourish. And that if this happened, that they would have knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And when early Christians read Isaiah, just like, their bad moment, you know, now it's a different empire, but they're hanging around Jerusalem and Judea, even up in the Galilee, reading this text while Rome just rolls over the top of them. And they started wondering, maybe this could happen. Maybe this is true for our time. They saw in the first five verses, Christ. And in the second, this new community who had organized themselves under the lordship the kingship of Jesus. Of course, Jesus wasn't strong enough or violent enough for the kingdoms of this world. He was too weak and gentle. And so they killed him, of course. But in this part of the story, what we remember is that, that a shoot actually did come from the house of Jesse, the stump of Jesse. Um, one of the weird things about that is that it comes through Joseph, who adopts him is not a small thing. That's how he gets in the lineage. This man has to, quaint, has to claim a woman who's supposed to be true to him and now turns up pregnant. This child born in Bethlehem in the city of David where Ruth had run as a refugee so many years before was born not to a wealthy family but to a bunch of peasants, a peasant father and an unwed mother. They settled there for just a little while and then had to flee as political refugees to Egypt. When they came back, they couldn't go home. They had to run clear up to the Galilee. And so Jesus would grow up kind of a refugee his whole life. This is the child who, who would lead them toward peace. There's this famous American um, painter named Edward Hicks. He was a Quaker who lived in like the 1700s, 1800s. And he became captivated by this vision from Isaiah chapter 11. And so he decided to paint it. And he called his painting the Peaceable Kingdom. And sort of strangely, he painted it. And um, after he finished it, he painted it again. The lion and the lamb. 
the cow and the bear, the child and the venomous snake. And he called this one the peaceful kingdom again. And he sort of just kept going. He painted it again and again and again. He became obsessed with this vision from Isaiah 11, painted it over and over, and he called every single one of them the peaceable kingdom. 62 of these things still exist to this day. They think there were over 100 of them at the time. The early ones are are really serene and kind of idyllic uh, pastoral scenes. And and later on, he he began to experiment with more contemporary themes. Hicks was living on the frontier of Pennsylvania um, at the time when William Penn signed a treaty with the Native Americans. And so he painted that. Into, into one of his paintings. That's it over to the left. And he saw in that kind of contemporary thing a glimpse of the peaceable kingdom. He's like, yeah, this is it. This is thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's happening right here. And he was doing this all with, with a purpose. You know, These were the warring factions of the day. And he was saying, this is what a wise leader looks like. Not tearing people apart, but pulling them together. And then, then he just went on. He just kept painting the same picture over and over. As time went on, the, the wild beasts weren't so cartoony. They looked a little more scary. You know, in, the, in the early years, the lions almost looked like house cats. Later on, they were menacing. They had sharp teeth and looked hungry. Almost like as if later in life, when wisdom was really percolating in him, he, he knew how dangerous the wild beasts really were. In the last bunch of them, it's so funny. You can um, see the animals are in just complete surprise. Like, look at this little gentleman (laughs) right here. Go go to the next one. He's like, you can really see. He's like, what is happening to me? Why am I not eating this delicious cow? (laughs) This is, by the way, I mean, only a Quaker could paint this. And this is part of what they have taught us. We, we have to read Isaiah 11 with one eye on the peaceable kingdom and the other eye on the wild beasts because they came to play. And often they are our own leaders. And we have to know what they are capable of. can't get cute when you read Isaiah 11. We live, we live in a world with a dreadful abundance of human predators, treacherous and corrupt teachers, leaders, institutions who don't care about the vulnerable. They think they live at the top of the heap and they have no idea that it's a dung heap. It's a heap of rubbish. They're the kings, but they are the kings of nothing. They're the kings of all that is perishing. And we have to keep an eye on those guys. They're dangerous to us and especially to the meek and the poor. They don't believe in what we believe in. They have no frame of reference outside the system. And so they warp and corrupt everything that they get their hands on. I'm talking about governments, parties, ecosystems, cultures, corporations, families, churches, institutions of all kind, people even. These folks, instead of the wild beasts, instead of stewarding everything, they exploit everything. You know what I mean? 
Instead of protecting the vulnerable, they abuse them. Instead of fostering goodwill, they just live by fostering grievance and fear and anger. The Christian has to keep our eyes on those guys. And we never fall for it. We never justify it. We don't let them warp our imagination. And the way that we do this is we maintain this connection to a reference point outside of the system. And that's why Isaiah's vision of the the peaceable kingdom um, is so important to hang on to. It's why we read it um, on Sunday morning every three years during Advent. It's why Edward Hicks painted it over and over and over. Because you um, you can't just look at it once and get it and say, okay, I got it now. It's so counterintuitive. You have to keep looking over and over again. It's so contrary to our experience and to reality as we know it. And it's part of why we do Advent every single year. We just have to keep coming back over and over to be reminded this is the true nature of reality. This is the future of God breaking into the world through Christ. This is where the people of God draw our imagination from this. That's our frame of reference, and it comes from outside the system. When we keep our minds on this and draw our lives from this idea of the peaceable kingdom, we are weird. We live with this inexplicable hope even in dark times, hope in this future. And then we learn to see the little ways, like the, like the guys off in the distance making the treaty, we see the little ways in which the kingdom is, is always breaking into the world. And so we, we become a people of hope, and as a people of hope, we actually can be a blessing to the world, especially to the outcasts and the strugglers and the marginalized. And if we, if we contemplate this, if we root some, as much of, I guess, our, our imagination in this as possible, what happens is we start to live out of hope instead of fear. And we're not afraid of anything, maybe not even of death. And this, this changes the way we live our life. To live with the hope that love is actually more real than hate. More powerful than hate. That grace is more powerful than condemnation. That forgiveness is more life-giving than revenge or punishment. That reconciliation builds up where, you know, disunity and war tears down. Christians, we're called to live with this kind of hope drawing our lives from this this picture, this vision of the peaceable kingdom from Isaiah 11. And we say, this is it. This is the future of God. This is the, the new world that was born into this world that came to life in Mary's belly. This is the world that came to life in Mary's belly. And it lives on in you and me and the people of God. And it comes from outside the system, and it doesn't compute, but it is, it is more real than everything else that seems real. The only way we, we 
can be captivated, captivated by this is to continually look at it all the time. That's Advent. Let's pray. Just for a moment, I would invite you to draw to mind maybe the things that inspire fear in you. The people you're afraid of, the villain you blame. The forces that you would name as kind of darkness. Whatever comes to mind when you think of fear. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to embody the peaceable kingdom here at Redemption Church in our common life, in the way that we live together, just to always seek peace and unity, not sameness, not like zombie, like um, homogenous being, but a unity, a oneness in our difference. Use our lives to extend this peace to the world. Help us to catch a vision of your kingdom come on earth and live a life that is peaceable within it. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion now. Um, The way we do it is we're just dismissed row by row by the ushers, and you'll come forward and be offered a, a plate of bread and a cup. And you take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond by saying, I remember, or however you're comfortable responding. And um, the reason we do this is because on the night before he was betrayed, Christ had this meal with his disciples. They took bread and this cup and they shared it together. And then he said, "Um, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, which is this new covenant, a new deal between humanity and God. And he said, whenever you gather, have this meal together. Remember your one family that gathers around one table and receive my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I've made up. I'm made out of. And then go live in the world and be salt and light to the world. And so this is why we receive communion every time we gather. And it's also why anybody who calls on the name of Christ can come to the table. Um, We just all come in need of the same grace, the same bread and cup. So if you would pray with me and let's let's bless it. Lord, we do give you thanks for this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us, O God. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world um, feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, 
who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?